You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to uh, Thrive this morning. We are in our second week of a series in the book of Daniel called Stand. And we're learning how to stand, how to stand firm, how to stand up, how to stand out, how to stand even in the fire. And uh, I'm really excited about this message. I didn't plan on it being, um, well, I just thought it would be a good series to start the year. But boy, a lot of people have been making stands lately, have they not? And some of them are just different versions of selfishness and egotism. We're not trying to do that here at all. Daniel did not make that kind of stand in his book. Today, we're looking how you can stand up And we have a case study today. In Daniel chapter 4, we have a case study of what pride looks like in this man, King Nebuchadnezzar, and how, literally, pride comes before the fall. But we also have a case study on how to handle a proud person. (laughs) Because Daniel comes to and stands up to King Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, And he stands up, though, not in his own pride, because, boy, you can fall into pride when you face somebody else who is proud. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but it's like, wait a minute. And then all of a sudden, it's a game of one-upping the other, correcting the other, proving the other wrong. (sighs) We've had a lot of that going on, too. But Daniel doesn't do that. What he does is he stands up both with care, with caution, and with conviction. But let's read. We're going to do a summary of uh, Daniel chapter 4. It's a long chapter. It's something that's worth your reading, probably. So we start, and it is a first-person account. It is kind of a testimony from Nebuchadnezzar himself, much of this chapter. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruits abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. 
This is the interpretation, O king. It is you. It is a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, king, let me counsel, my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. As this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Well, the words were still in the king's mouth. There fell a voice from heaven. O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. So those are a few of the verses in this chapter. It was a pretty long reading, but you need to kind of have at least that much to understand what the story is all about. And from today and from this chapter, we're going to find out these three things. How Daniel stood up with care, how you can stand up with caution, and how you can also stand up with conviction. First of all, with care. Now, I'm not sure if you realize who Nebuchadnezzar really was, okay? He was not just powerful. He was probably in the rarefied air of a half dozen people throughout world history as the most powerful people ever on earth. Maybe a dozen. There's somebody you might know or you've heard about that used Nebuchadnezzar as his model, as the one that he tried to live by. You know who that is? Saddam Hussein. Does that tell you a little bit about what Nebuchadnezzar was like, huh? If Saddam Hussein says, this is the guy I want to be like, and the way he lived, well, then you know. Then you realize. Nebuchadnezzar had actually destroyed Judah and a lot of the nations around him. He took the temple and all the elements from the temple and brought them back to his own palace, into his own pagan temples, and or melted them down. Jerusalem was defiled, and he claimed that his gods, actually he himself even deified himself as one of the gods of the pantheon, and he claimed his gods had overcome the god of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and it is to this one that Daniel had to serve. And Daniel was not some volunteer who said, oh, this sounds like a good place. Let's go to Babylon. Daniel was conscripted. He was in exile. He was forced into, like we said last week, a three-year period of reindoctrination or of education at the highest level in, the, in all of the arts, the literature, the sciences, the culture, the language, the well, the religion of Babylon. He was even like in this text, given that name from Daniel to Belteshazzar. So he is the one who is standing before the most powerful person on earth in his day, one of the most powerful people on earth at all. And it's amazing how he stands there, especially compared to others in Judah 
who also were in exile at that time. In fact, Psalm 137 talks about that. It says, by the waters of Babylon, what did they do? They wept. And in verse, one, uh, verse 4, it says, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? They didn't even know how to sing or worship God when they weren't in Judah, in Jerusalem. And here, Daniel doesn't just know how to pray or sing, but he even knows how to not pray in Babylon, but he even prays for Babylon. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Christopher Wright states this um, in his book on Daniel. Once again, we should marvel at the fact that Daniel so freely, so willingly, so completely served the man who had destroyed his homeland, devastated his city, and deported his people. We could hardly have a more practical example of love your enemies in Old Testament dress. Fascinating, isn't it? I just, I just like... I am learning so much doing this, uh, this series myself, and it's like, whoa, what a model in Daniel. And um, when Daniel is consulted with the dream and he understands the interpretation and no other wise person or sage or astrologer that was in Babylon understood it, he was not, you know, um, he understood this interpretation, well, this is what the text says in Daniel 4.19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. He wasn't happy with what he knew the interpretation was. His thoughts alarmed him. The king said, don't, you know, don't hold this interpretation back. And Belteshazzar says, my Lord made the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So he was troubled. He, he, didn't, uh, he didn't feel superior, or he didn't say, hey, it's about time Nebuchadnezzar gets it, you know? This is what should happen to him. He is so, he did not get some satisfaction over what will happen to Nebuchadnezzar. I love this one German term. I don't have it up here on the screen or anything, but just thought about it. Have you ever heard of the term schadenfreude before? Yeah, it's a German language has wonderful words sometimes, you know, and this one is a one that's hard to translate it, but it means being like, oh, look at the downfall of somebody else. And you have some really weird satisfaction in seeing somebody else go through misfortune. <laughs> All in one word, schadenfreude. Daniel had none of that. He wasn't like, oh, yeah, this is that. Because, and he should have, or could, or I would have. Wouldn't you? Yeah. But instead, he cares. He stood with care. He had a love for the one who had conquered his own people. That is amazing. When I encounter pompous people, and I do, don't you? People who are kind of full of themselves, it is so easy to fall into schadenfreude if all of a sudden things fall apart for them. You go like, yeah, that's exactly it. Pride does come before the fall. We'll get to that next point, but Daniel doesn't. Daniel does not. He cares. He loves this man who had actually enslaved him and oppressed many people. He had a divine love for him. And because he had a divine love for him and saw him as another human being, even though in a very rarefied era that very few people in this all of world history have ever faced, when he does speak a word of correction to him, 
Nebuchadnezzar has a much higher chance of receiving it. So, we stand up with care. Secondly, we stand up with caution. Now, when you hear this word caution, you're probably thinking, yeah, you know, when you're around the most powerful person on earth who at any whim or any decision could just take your life away from you, you might want to just be, watch what you say to them. But that's not the caution I'm talking about here. No, um, the caution that Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar was the caution of him reflecting on how he could fall into the same fate and the same situation that Nebuchadnezzar, he himself could fall into pride. In diagnosing the pride in someone else, the thing that comes up for me so easily is a sense of self-righteousness, right? And um, I recall years ago when I was up in Gainesville, Florida at a church where I was the pastor of, I had a couple members of my church who really wanted me to preach on certain issues, you know? And um, I don't know, um, we've got a couple of uh, retired pastors in our midst this morning, actually, and I don't know if you've ever had pa- people, did you ever have Lowell people tell you what you should be preaching on? Every week. Every week, okay. <laughs> um, I, you should be, you should, you should, and um, what I noticed, it was all the issues that they didn't have to face themselves. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, and I don't like to preach against society that much at church because that does so easily turn into a self-righteous stance of look at how much better we are than everybody else. Daniel could have fallen into that. You know, Daniel could have fallen into that, looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, <laughs> you are just you know, and he could have gone through the laundry list of how arrogant and egotistical and oppressive he had been, but he doesn't do that. He stands with caution. Uh, David Myers and Malcolm Jeeves, in their book, Psychology Through the Eyes of Faith, says this, the Bible does warn us against self-righteous pride, pride that alienates us from God and leads us to disdain one another. Such pride is at the heart of racism, sexism, nationalism, and all the deadly chauvinisms that lead one group of people to see themselves as more, more moral, deserving, or able than another. Uh, ouch. Ouch but true. I got to watch what I'm saying about those people. Do you understand? Daniel didn't say, well, you're getting what you deserve. That's why Christopher Wright says, it is a test of our maturity how we deal with pride in ourselves. It's equally so when we have to deal pride or its downfall in others. The instinct for revenge is strong. So I get it. I get it. Right now, there are people in our society, groups, issues, everywhere, of people who disagree with you, that have different values than you, that defy your values, that criticize you for the values you may have as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian. I get it. I get it. It's easy to see the contradictions and the hypocrisy in other people. It is so much harder to see it in yourself. I am so tempted when I see this stuff in the anti-social media realm. <laughs> it's not really social media, you know. <laughs> it's not bringing us together. It's tearing us apart. When I see it in that, when I see it in all sorts of forum in this country and around the world, it's so easy to start to dehumanize the other person. 
or the other group, to just see an issue, a problem to overcome, how you can win, the satisfaction when they fall, the, um, the opposition, the resistance to whatever they're saying. And it comes across that way when we do that. No wonder Paul spoke against this kind of thing in of the, all his churches. It was to the Corinthians who were the know-it-alls of the New Testament. I don't know if you realize that. But the first Corinthian church was filled with a bunch of know-it-alls. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's, that is to stand up in caution, with caution. So Daniel sees Nebuchadnezzar before him, and he still sees his full humanity before him. Even though Nebuchadnezzar is the only person, on, the highest position on earth, he still sees his human frailties, his human brokenness, and he also sees himself and empathizes even with his plight at that time. Now, at the, this point, you're going like, well, you know what? It's just better not to say anything, not to take a stand on any ever issue in my life ever, because anytime I do it, I'm sure people can find the hypocrisy in me. And so let's just let everybody just be whatever they want to be. It's all okay. Just don't hurt anybody too much. Avoiding to stand up at all, though, for truth or justice or what's right, you know what that is? It's another temptation into pride because it's really about me trying to protect myself. Daniel could have said, hey, I'm just going to walk away from this situation. I'm not going to say anything. But because he cared and because he was cautious, he could also then stand up with conviction, our third point. What is rather amazing, isn't it? Daniel doesn't just stop with the interpretation in this passage. He gives to Nebuchadnezzar, the most influential, powerful person on earth, he gives him advice, unsolicited. Tell me, how do you like advice? I don't even like it when I ask for it. Because <laughs> I'm really not asking for advice. I'm not asking for information. I'm asking for affirmation. Do you understand that? I'm asking, hey, because I want you to stroke me at the time. I want to say, oh, yeah, that's OK. That's no problem. Oh, you're so, you know, I want you to come to my defense. I want you to be kind of a lawyer who's defending me. I do not want you to be prophetic to find out and say any. Do you understand that's how advice works? We ask for it, but we really don't. We're asking for affirmation, not information. I want a lawyer. I don't want a prophet. Daniel's a prophet, and he says in Daniel 4.27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All of a sudden, it's gone well beyond just, hey, you're, you're a little egotistical. You need to maybe cut that down to the practical implications of how Nebuchadnezzar had built his entire empire on the backs of people. It was oppression. It was injustice. And it was arrogance. Christopher Wright says that Daniel put his finger on the spot 
sore spot of Babylon's imperial glory, its social cost in terms of human oppression and exploitation. So it's not just that Daniel said, you better feel a little humble because it's really just only a matter of your sincerity inside yourself. You need to change the way you've got this whole thing set up here, Nebuchadnezzar, because it's not set up as God would want it. Pride takes many forms. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, it could also take the form, kind of a flip side, of looking at these oppressed people, the people that he had enslaved, and blaming them for their own oppression. I don't know if you realize that, but it's easy to do it. When you, when you see somebody that you've not really treated well, it's often that we flip it around and make them the cause of it. So David Myers and Malcolm Jeeves in their book, again, Psychology Through the Eyes of Faith, say the flip side of being proud of our individual and group achievements and taking credit for them is blaming the poor for their poverty and the oppressed for their oppression. Ouch. Babylon was proud. They had a very strong sense of how great they were. And their whole theology, their whole pantheon of gods and goddesses just reinforced why they were the best on earth when they weren't. And they couldn't see what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could see, the injustice all around. Now, it didn't take hold. We didn't read all. When Daniel had made this, at least he didn't lose his life over it, right? But, it, but, but for an entire year afterwards, nothing had changed Nebuchadnezzar's attitude until it says, 12 months later, and the king answered and said, he's walking around the tops of his courts, you know, the hanging gardens of Babylon and all this. It's just the most beautiful place on earth. And he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Do you understand how, do you see, he is, is not this great, I've built Babylon. Did he build Babylon? He probably never even touched a brick and put it on top of another. Do you understand? He didn't do any of He enslaved people to build Babylon. All he did was make decisions. All he did was dictate to others what to do. He didn't do a thing himself. And then he takes full glory. It's for his glory and his majesty. And it's right then that God speaks that word, and he falls into a mental illness, acts like a beast for seven times. We're not sure if seven times means seven years or just seven lengths of time. But for a long period of time, he acted like an animal, a beast. He lost his position, his throne. He lost everything. He was less than human in his attitude and mind. And only at the end of this chapter, when he finally acknowledges that the God of heaven and earth is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Daniel's God, only then, when he is brought to that point of humility, does he come into sanity. Do you realize what's going on here? Only a true humbling brings us to truly being sane and realistic about ourselves in this world. Now, you might be thinking about this point in time in this message. Oh, my goodness, how could Daniel do all this? He's just like almost perfect in these chapters, and I'm not like him at all. And you might start thinking, oh, I've got to be like him. I've got to just care like he cared and be convicted as he's convicted and just be so cautious as he's cautious. And 
And you turn the Bible into a book of virtues, like I said last week. It's not, this story is not really about that. We all look at these stories and go like, I am so not like Daniel. Russell Moore, I love this quote I just recently read. He says, and I often find myself frustrated that I cannot live up to the Bible stories embedded in my conscience. The Bible is not a book about, about virtues or people and what you better do and not do. It's not a dictionary. It's not a set of you know, protocols or rules. The Bible is God's story with God at the center of it, how God interacts with human beings, even people like Nebuchadnezzar, because what God wants for Nebuchadnezzar is what is the best for Nebuchadnezzar, and he might not realize it at the time. It's really a, of the story of Daniel is how God showed favor to Daniel, not because Daniel was smart or you know, none of that, but just because God is gracious and compassionate. And this chapter is not a chapter about how God is mean to Nebuchadnezzar, but how God actually is showing favor to Nebuchadnezzar because he's gracious and compassionate. What, you thought? How, 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 is, that, how is fallen down from his throne gracious and compassionate? Because it's only when he realizes his own depravity his own inability, does he look up and see the God who saves? This is what Psalm 145 says, and this is really how God works time and again. It says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? And here's the reality. Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one who needs to be humbled. I do. Daniel did. This chapter reminded me of some words uh, from the reformer, Martin Luther, 500 years ago. He understood this reality of how God works, not with the pomposity that empires often have, not with people in power, but with bringing people down from their, quote, lofty thrones to raise them up by his grace and goodness. And he said it this way, although he is the God of life and salvation, and this is his proper work, yet in order to accomplish this, he kills and destroys. This is pretty flowery language or like, you know, very, very graphic. I wouldn't necessarily use it quite like that, but this is what he's, these are alien to him, but through them he accomplishes his proper work, for he kills our will, that his may be established in us. He killed Nebuchadnezzar's pride and arrogance and, you know, just his big-headedness and brought him down to be just like one of the beasts of the field, not to keep him there. He subdues the flesh and its lust that the spirit and its desires may come to life. Do you get it? If you're down, humiliated, lost, confused, needy, broken, you're in the right position 
where you're probably more open to God's love and his word of grace than ever before. You really are seeing the true condition that we human beings are in at that moment. God is right there doing his great work in you because there he is forgiving and loving and healing and empowering and enlivening and blessing and resurrecting. That's when he's doing it. He raises up those who are bowed down. Everyone is needing to be humbled. What's most shocking to me, though, is this truth of those who are bowed down, those who are brought down, does not stop with you and me, broken human beings, but even the life of Jesus. I am just amazed at this reality. Jesus experienced nothing differently. In fact, he went through it all. He's the one who gets crushed and broken and bruised. He is treated worse than an animal, being crucified on a cross, humiliated and tormented. And he didn't do it because he needed to be humbled. He had been humbled all the way through his life. He was always reflecting on his father. But he was humiliated and poured out his whole life, not for his sake, but for yours. He went through that because we needed him to go through that in order for us to actually be raised up. And you have been united with Jesus Christ. You've been united with him through his death and resurrection so that to you, to live as Christ, to die is gain. For you, you've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you alone or Nebuchadnezzar or, or the ego there alone, but it is Christ who lives in you. Isn't that amazing passages right there? So Daniel may be a case study in humility, both for Nebuchadnezzar and how to handle the proud around you in Daniel, but it's really the case study of how God works in all of our lives. And God works through his church and his people. It's a case that even one of the most ruthless, oppressive human beings ever to exist on this planet, how he is someone God wanted to be his very own and to acknowledge his kingdom and his glory. And Nebuchadnezzar does that. Isn't that amazing? So stand with care, stand with caution, stand with conviction. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this day, we stand on the work that you have done, Lord Jesus, how you stood before Pilate, how you stood in our place, how you took our place, how you were humbled to the point of death death even on a cross, and therefore God exalted you to the highest place. We are amazed at what you went through for us, and we are amazed in this chapter, Lord, of how you loved Nebuchadnezzar enough to put him off of his throne for a time, to raise him up to faith and trust in you. Thank you for using Daniel in his life that way. We pray, Lord, that we also do learn from Daniel how we can stand in our culture at this time, not in our arrogance or self-righteousness, but in the righteousness you give us, Lord Jesus, your robe of righteousness that you've won for us, how we can stand with care for others to love even our enemies, how we can stand with caution, recognizing our own pride and, and tendencies toward arrogance. And we can stand still in conviction and speak truth to power as Daniel did. Lord God, this day as well, we are asking 
uh, your peace and blessing upon many. For uh, Pastor David Brighton's family, as he passed away just a week ago from COVID-19 in Georgia, Lord, we pray that you'd be with his wife, his children, and his church, Lord God, as they mourn and grieve his death. We pray, Lord, that um, his testimony throughout his life would be uh, a great comfort to them all because it is a testimony of your gospel and your grace. So bless that church, Calvary, in Warner Robins, Georgia, right now, this morning, as they gather together online and in person without their senior pastor. We pray, Lord God, that you'd be with the Blankenship family. Thank you, Lord, for the celebration of Andy's life yesterday, for who she was, Lord, who you made her, how you redeemed her, how you uh, have uh, worked in her life through the 62 years of it, Lord, for your glory, and how you've now glorified her, and you will resurrect her along with us. So we ask for your peace and comfort to Jeff, to Joshua, Jacob, Katie, um, to the family at large, her brothers and sisters, for all of us here at Thrive, part of that family too, Lord. And we just pray that through the days ahead, you knit us closer together, that we would still um, see the good that Andy was and how she was following you and then model our lives in those ways as well to show your radiance, your goodness. We pray, Lord God, for um, those who are facing unemployment right now as a result of everything that's gone on, Lord, for those who are also uh, uh, dealing with COVID-19 in this pandemic, we pray for your healing. We also lift up to you, Lord, this nation at a very uh, time of a lot of tension and anxiety and transition, Lord, we pray for your peace. We pray for your protection. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives and through uh, your people. We pray for your church in the United States, Lord, that this time where we are in a many ways in Babylon, Lord, that we would be more like Daniel and that we would seek the peace and prosperity of the place that we are and that you would use us to witness to your goodness and grace and that you would extend your kingdom through us and that there would be nothing about us, Lord, that would put um, you to shame or dishonor or your cross. But all glory goes to you. And Lord God, in a few minutes, we will celebrate communion here. And for those online through Zoom, we pray, Lord God, that you would uh, unite us together, that you'd fill us with your goodness and grace, that you'd be present with us, that you'd gift us with your very self, and therefore, Lord, not only do we know that we are forgiven, but that we can be renewed and that you are living inside of us and that we can represent you to this world. So bless us in those times and in that time as well, Lord Jesus. All this we pray in your precious name. Amen.